Hey everybody, this is Michael Stiles. Welcome to another special episode of the Good Brew Podcast. This is another one of our Roast and Grind episodes. If you've been tracking with us, these are what we are calling our episodes in which we discuss your questions that you have asked and we want to talk about. So we're doing another round. A couple weeks ago, we released our first one. So feel free to go check that out. Again, if this is maybe your first time with us, these are special episodes. Normally, we come on here and talk about the coffee we're drinking. But for this one, we're just going to kind of dive right in with some questions that you guys have had. Now, this first one comes from Shri, and I'm actually going to pass it off to Justin to read this one. So the question is regarding the, uh, I think this is from the episode we did on the rapture. And specifically, the question is dealing with the judgment at the end of the age. Well, the the question is dealing with that. So it says, uh, I still have some questions regarding the timeline of the two different judgments and when they happen, as well as some questions about the 1,000-year reign. And The question is specifically, do we believe in the Bema Seat judgment and the Great White Throne judgment as being two separate events? So... There's kind of a couple questions in there. So basically, uh, she's wanting some clarification on what we believe regarding the judgments and then specifically the order of when those judgments will occur at the end. So the the first question I hear is, it sounds like, is there more than one judgment? Yes, that is that is the first question. That's the first yes. question. Clarifying on what exactly we're talking about. And if there are more than one judgments, what's the timeline? That seems to be the question. So if we... We could go two roads. There's either one judgment or more than one judgment. If there's only one judgment, then there's no such thing as a timeline because it's at the end of everything. But if there's two judgments, then it, the question is takes on more color, and it's like, okay, well, what's the sequence of, of these judgments? So I'm just trying to get my head around the question. So I'm going to add a side question. What is the Bema Seat? Yeah, what's that about? I've never heard that word. Uh, the Bema Seat is basically, it's an elevated platform. Is what This is what it says on Wikipedia here, so take it for what it's worth, y'all. Um, but basically, this is the judgment in theological talk of the believer at the seat of Christ. Okay. This is distinct from the judgment of the unbeliever at the great white throne of God. So kind of like your deeds kind of judgment? Yeah, exactly. It's actually... It's actually it's exactly that. Why is it, what, what's Bema? It's just the word for like this platformer. Interesting. Um, oh, okay. The Bema seat, basically. The is elevate. that kind of like the thing like in the courtyards of the, uh, the synagogue? There, like you see pictures of it all the time. Like I don't know. Apostles came before the Bema seat that the person, the judge or whatever was sitting on. Anyway, yeah. Sorry, tangent. Sorry. So the, so the question is, is basically we're talking about two distinct judgments, one being a judgment of Christians, of right. believers, and the nature of that judgment yes. versus the judgment for the right. uh, un, the unrighteous or the unbeliever at the throne of God, at the, the great white throne, basically. So, Well, I think we would affirm that there will be a judgment for the wicked and the righteous. <laughs> yes, and, and, and yeah. it, Scripture does talk about, yeah. as Christians, us being, you know, we know, from, we know from Scripture that for those who are Christians, there is now no condemnation. Right. So... We don't have to fear a judgment of condemnation, right? That's not something, regardless of you, you're in Christ, you are, your sins are forgiven. Mm-hmm. The question is, what about the talk that we find in Scripture, and we can look up some examples if we want to, of rewards, of you, of people being 
Uh, and even, I mean, there's times and time again of being given rewards, cr- this idea of crowns, and, sure. and, and we, we see that throughout the, uh-huh. the New Testament. So I think our question would be, do we affirm the distinction there? And if so, then the chronology question would be the second part of the question. I mean, I think it's it's obvious that there there definitely are there definitely is a judgment that is there uh, the righteous will be judged differently than the wicked. Yeah, so I'm so just going to affirm that. Yeah, I I, I want to read the passage that is the I think the one of the foundational passages that's talking about this bema seat judgment. It's from Second Corinthians chapter five verses nine and ten, and Paul says there. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there, there's the passage, I think, that we see that, okay, Christians are going to appear before Christ to be given rewards for what they've done. If we're, as we've always done, establishing continuity between Acts and the story. Yes. In the Old Testament, i.e. Act 3, with Israel, there we have to say that they had shelf space for what they would call the day of the Lord, which is the day at some point in history where God makes all things right. And that our conception of ju- of the judgment is there's continuity between what we conceive as judgment day or what this verse is bearing witness to and the day of the Lord, right? In the Israelite imagination, there there's some continuity there, right? I think the, the question with the Bema Seed is you're specifically getting into the rewards for or the judgment of what believers have done versus God bringing the wicked to account and condemning the injustice, right. condemning the wickedness, condemning the evil that has been pervading creation since Genesis 3. Uh-huh. We are saying that with the Christian, that's already been condemned. Our sin's already been dealt with. Right. So th- the distinction is between, again, who is being judged and the nature of the judgment one is punitive in the sense that, okay, you're being punished. Um, the other would be you're given rewards for your service to, to the Lord. Does that make sense? Yeah, so she's just asking... She, she We didn't mention, in, in the podcast, or pre, the previous podcast, we did not mention the distinction at all. Uh, and granted, that okay. was, you know, the podcast really was dealing specifically with the rapture, but we right. didn't really deal with the distinction of the judgments. Yeah. Well, part of her question did involve the thousand-year reign. Yes, it did. Now, based on our kind of hermeneutic, which we'll, we'll definitely do an episode about um, what we believe is kind of a, a proper hermeneutic for the Bible, I would say, that, and there's a lot of questions about the thousand-year, and I think that started to really make sense to me once I started to see the number thousand in Hebrew numerology. It's just their number for um infinity infin- yeah it was like that was almost because they, they went to ten thousand but whenever they wanted to really multiply the like fullness of something they would multiply it by a thousand uh-huh. and so i don't think it's a literal thousand there it's it's like the complete fullness of jesus's reign so in regards to the thousand year reign depending on how you interpret what that means and again we're talking about the millennium as referenced in revelation chapter i think it's 20, 20 yeah yeah and this will determine the second part of the question yes. it's it, when you're it's dealing timing. yeah the i would so i would want to affirm yes there's a distinction there is a distinction and but answering the chronological question will determine how you understand the millennial kingdom 
whether that is, and, and we don't have to dive into all the particulars of those, but largely three categories with some subcategories in there, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism would be your three main camps. Within the premillennial camp, there are two broad camps, classic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Those words may not mean anything to those listening. Unless you heard the rapture episode. Yeah, unless you heard the rapture episode. But again, there's a lot of uh, debate on how this millennium and this thousand years fits into the scheme at the, the end and our understanding of you know what's coming or depending on who you ask, what has already happened. So we, we should say this though, like we need to be charitable on this because it's not, there's a lot of really smart people who, who disagree very strongly on this. And I think there are good arguments, honestly, for several of these positions. I, I, I would want to say that, that it's not as clear cut probably as some people want to make it sound. Right. Um, I don't know if anybody has any thoughts, but that's kind of my just preliminary thoughts on that. Sorry to follow up on, on what I was saying to get the actual kind of a better definition of it. Um, I was Googling around and the common thread that I got for the symbolism of the number 1000 in the Hebrew Bible is immensity, fullness of quantity, and multitude. So just kind of maybe keep that in mind when you see thousand, but that I digress. Sorry. So we're affirming the distinction. Yes, I would affirm. And the distinction. we're, we're agnostic on the, for the purpose of this conversation about yeah, chronology because we're not. We, we we've taken a stand on the issue. Go well, listen yeah. to our rapture episode, but which so our stand would be? Our stand would be that well, we haven't really taken a stand on the millennium though, I because guess, no, the rapture is the rapture is this. You can be either three of the That's true. millennial camps and not affirm a rapture. Can which, I take a stand on the millennium? Can I take you a stand? Hear, I'm gonna take a stand. Okay, go ahead and say it. You're I on. want to throw this out. I'm, I'm live. We're on the air. We're live. If you guys are listening to this, we're live. And every time you hear it back, we're live again. It's crazy. It's crazy how that works. I'd want to venture an opinion that it's not like a true, it's not like a real millennium. It's that when Jesus comes back, everybody will be resurrected. And that's kind of the, the judgment moment. And the thousand years is just like the immense fullness of Christ's kingdom reigning forever. And okay, ever. so what what can be... We're probably about to go down this. What's confusing about what... I, I mean, I, I am more where you are on the issue. What gets okay. confusing, I think, for people is in Revelation, it talks about the thousand years ending yeah. and their events happening after the thousand years. Yeah. And so that's where it gets tricky if if you if you're trying to read revelation linearly that's where it gets tricky but there are other ways there are other ways of reading revelation there's a cyclical view there's other views that you know would probably probably be more in touch with the apocalyptic genre of what it is yeah than than trying to read it linearly so but i think for a lot of people it's the fact that there's stuff that happens after the millennium as far as the chapter sequence goes. Sure, I think what trips people and and up. what 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 some would say is that you know we are actually the millennium has already it's a reality now it's already begun and this is where so it would be a counter to what you said uh, that you know we're waiting for the millennial reign to start that some would say it began with the enthronement of Christ in at the right hand of God during the uh, after the resurrection and the ascension so again there where would you venture your guess. <laughs> I mean, I really, honestly, I don't know. Like, I would want to lean towards the amillennial camp, um, which is 
uh, that the, it began. Yeah, I would want to. I would want to say that this crime. is hap- the, the. I'm not dogmatic on this though. I would want to say though that we are the millennial reign is happening now. Okay. Christ is reigning yes. now through with, church. See, I'm gonna amend myself. I, yes, I agree. <laughs> well, from that, I like that perspective. Yeah. Christ is reigning now. That's right. something I was completely just overlooking. Right, but I also am sympathetic to the fact that there's some other things. There, there are some things to consider here. That, like I said, I think, with the exception of the subcategory of the premillennial view that deals with dispensationalism, I actually find arguments for all three. Yeah, they're, they're they're very persuasive. Which even, is like things even, will get better before they get worse. Things will get worse, worse before, before they, they get, get better, better, and then things are just how they are now. Amillennial Amil- and premillennial, amillennialism and classic premillennialism both think things are going to get worse before they get better. Postmillennialism thinks they're going to get better. Right. <laughs> and then they'll get worse when Jesus... Or no, they think they just... It, it'll they, culminate they, into a, this golden, golden age, age yeah. of uh, of uh, harmony and prosperity. Yeah, and even though I'm not in that camp, I hope they're right. Yeah, right. Sure. So it's one of those things that I really am... I'm, I'm not hanging on too tight to any of these. Like, I'm kind of yeah, dancing. But <laughs> I like what you said. I, I love... That. I mean, we talk about this all the time. I, don't, I just wasn't even thinking about it. Sorry, guys. We would affirm Jesus is reigning now. I think it has to do with the way you understand the reign. No one, I don't think, well, I'm sure there are some, but I think there are people with all three of these camps who would affirm a reign of Christ is happening now. The question is, what does it mean when it talks about the reign of in, during the 1,000-year kingdom? Is that a, and I use this word, like a literal physical reign Flesh on the earth Jesus. that Jesus will yeah. Ret- yeah. return, and there will be a, a period of... A thousand years that Jesus is reigning, um, and you know, if you're the dispensationalist, of course that's what you what you think. And also, it's going to be on David's throne as a literal throne in Jerusalem, like this whole concept. So, again, I, I think we we need to be charitable with each other on this one because there is a lot of debate, and it's an interesting conversation. And I do think there are some practical implications from it. But at the end of the day, it's really just now. Couldn't you say though? That either way, as a Christian that believes in Jesus, you, I firmly believe we need to be concerned with like eschatology and whatnot. But at the end of the day, like this isn't a hill to die on for anybody because if you're with Jesus one way or another, you're going to be with him for eternity. Yeah, I would say with I would say that I, I would say though that certain strands of eschatology can lead towards some. I mean, unproductive, unproductive, and honestly, some pretty. Dane, I don't want to say, I don't know what the word is, but like you can venture close to some dangerous ideas. Um, sure. Some ideas that are perhaps not so in line with the gospel. So that's where I would want to just caution people to, hey, again, none of these camps, even the dispensational camp, which I'm not in, none of these camps are outside of orthodoxy. Um, everyone, you're not a heretic. You're not a heretic on this, regardless of which <laughs> one you, you fall into. Thank the Lord, we're not heretics on this. But somebody's right and somebody's wrong, you know. I was, or we're all wrong. But I, I you know, right. we're not all right on it. I mean, it's okay. Right. We're all right. But we're not all right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but to answer the question, we are affirming a distinction between the judgment of the believer and the unbeliever. Yes, we would affirm that. And we are we are for the purposes of this answering this question, we're saying we're agnostic on the timeline. Mm-hmm. And the t- your your timeline will depend on which uh, large view you of adopt the of the millennium and yes. the in the end time. So yeah, 
depending on where you see that fitting in will determine how you understand the judgment, the order, and yeah. when those will happen. The official good brew position would be more in a non-literal thousand-year reign, potentially, like a Jesus' flesh and blood on on planet Earth. Yeah. Well, um, but it's not. But the thing is, it's so, not to say that that's not going to happen. It is going to happen. That's the thing. I firmly it is believe. Happen. I just don't know if that section right. of right. Revelation is talking about that exactly. And that's why I want to definitely affirm. I believe New Heavens New Earth is going to well, be I physical. Believe, and it is that could that be if we're reading a cyclical view what Revelation twenty is actually talking yeah. about? But here's so the, I don't if know. The, if the number one thousand in the rest of the Bible never means a literal thousand, why would it all of a sudden right there mean a literal thousand? But that's a different question though, because it doesn't matter. I don't think the really big hang up here for some people it might be is will it be nine hundred ninety years or well, sure. But, but I think the hang up is is it going to be Jesus coming to Earth? and reigning in a physical sense, is that what that's talking about, or is it talking about... I mean, that's really where you start to deal so with it. So the year doesn't matter, because... I mean, for some I does. wonder, though, but the, the just the symbolism of 1,000, though, that's where it starts to really get tricky, though. Because if it had said, like, 885, then that's pretty specific, but the fact that it's always used 1,000, then, yeah, I see yeah, the yeah, amillennialist sure. viewpoint. And, and the post-millennial would also maintain that it's not 1,000, okay. a literal 1,000 years. They're going to maintain it's, it's going to be something else, you too. know how You know what I think it's going to be? Five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred minutes. If anybody's seen Rent, oh. if not, then well, I'm but made fun of more. I definitely think, though, you know, with this conversation, we should not be too dogmatic on it, um, and we all need to be humble enough to say we we probably don't have this thing figured out uh, exactly. Yeah, but we need to. Uh, I think dialogue's good, and, and obviously let the text let this let the text guide us. And you know, if we come to different conclusions on this, it's not the it's not the end of the world yet <laughs> pun intended so <laughs> <laughs> well i hope that leads a little bit of revelation on shri and your question um if you have further thoughts towards that on our next roast and grind we'll continue that thread but we're going to go ahead and move on we have a return of mr denver and he asked us a question uh some good questions about the snake on our last roast and grind and um He's got another question here for us. This is kind of more aimed at a comment that I said in the last episode. Um, yes, Denver, Georgia Tech is the best team. So we just answered that one for you. No. Um, <laughs> no comment on that. No, comment. no uh, this is actually something that uh, we had talked about in the, the law episode. And it was something that I had said about animal sacrifices not being a precursor to Jesus. Or sacrifices in, in general, I think, is what I said. He he said animal, but I think I said sacrifices in general not being a precursor to Jesus. And actually, I think, Philip, you had even mentioned we'll probably need to follow up on that comment. So he says, Michael's thought on Israel doing animal sacrifice because that was deemed a norm in that era of time is a super slippery slope that probably should be smoothed over because that can open Pandora's box to all kinds of possibilities. I firmly agree with you there, Denver. This is something that I want to give a little uh, little weight behind my comment here. I'm going to just read a couple sentences here. This is from, if you followed us on uh, that episode one of the books we talked from was The Lost World of the Torah, and I want to read some of these things here, and we can talk about these if you guys agree with these or not. And another reason is because I think that uh, Mr. Mr. John Walton can probably say it a little better than I can. Uh, I would hope so. He gets paid to do this. So he says, A properly functioning 
cultic and ritual system was a symbol of a properly ordered and functioning society. Because the purpose was revelation, Israelite society needed to be a more or less ideal embodiment of social order by the standards of the ancient world. And so this is what Denver is asking about. A society that lacked a cult system would not have been seen as functioning properly. In the ancient world, a society without a cult system would have been perceived in much the same way that we perceive a society without elections. Because Yahweh does not wish to establish himself as the god of a backwards and dysfunctional nation, he establishes a cult system but repurposes it to reflect his relationship with Israel as opposed to the mutual codependence that other gods and people had. Do you guys, are you tracking with that? I mean, to me, it kind of makes sense. Like, I like what he said there of, God is not does not want to be seen as the god of a backwards nation and if literally everybody else around you is doing it and that's what in your culture defines what a ordered society is is it a slippery slope to say well then God would take that even though even if he is repurposing it to their What s- would Walton say because I think this question might address that Yes, other cultures were doing this, but how was what's the distinction between the way yeah, the Israelites it? viewed what they were doing and let's say the Canaanites? Yeah, so the- when we talked about in that episode about how the Torah is wisdom, but it's laid out as stipulations of a treaty. So it's like, these are the things that you as my people need to do. I'm your king. These are the things you need to do. And so the flip side is there is how other cultures would sacrifice to the gods because the gods needed to be fed, the gods needed to be clothed. And like yeah. to us, it's very silly because, yeah. first of all, we know they're impotent, but like how are you going to clothe a god by? So regardless, I mean, that's how, that's what the thought was. For them, for the Israelites though, it was repurposed as we are in a treaty with God and these are our, um, our Con- tributes, our, our offerings, our, our contributions. Offerings. Yes. Yes. Because they're critical. God need, God wanted you to prove like your right. faithfulness. And then even the Psalms like illuminate Jewish imagination about this, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need anything to eat. Like, yes. So that's going kind of illuminate. This is not what this is for. And so it's that, still critical. It's like still critical, the offerings are we're not key. feeding God anything, and that, that just, yeah. And that is a profound difference between the way the Israelites saw what they were doing, and someone in like a right. Canaanite culture would have right, saw exactly. what they were doing. So but they still would have seen that this is very important to do, yes. right? But for different reasons. Exactly. And there is a that's where it's but not it, just monkey see, monkey do. No, and if, and like I said, what I was trying to say when I initially tried to respond to this question. The whole human vocation. I think that's what God was calling them to. Was it's the summing up and giving back mm. that was involved in the sacrifice. Which you, even today, you were t- you're taking the cream of the crop and you're offering it to the Lord. Yeah. You're, you're you're saying that I am not God. You are. You, this belongs to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which today is so relevant for us even yeah. now. Paul, present your body as a living sacrifice. You every day are saying, "I'm not my own. I'm I'm made by you. I owe you know yep. my life to you." You know, so absolutely. Um, so would outsiders see that distinction in the Israelites? No, but or would they, they would just see, see the same thing. They would see the sacrifices. So to them, and, and like I said, this is like a hypothetical which, situation because I don't know if people are necessarily at a window like peering in. But well, I mean, like if the Israelites are supposed to be distinct from all the other cultures and it's supposed to like show Yahweh to everybody else, you would think that it would be that they would look at the Israelites and see like, oh, they're doing this because of this other reason. Yes, but then... Or would they look at it and just see like, oh, they're just like us. They're just worshiping a different God. They're just doing the same thing. Yeah, but then to to kind of bring that into nowadays, people could say that, but it's like, but let me... This is not what they would have said, but like, but let me tell you about like Jesus. I'm telling you about my God. They would... The only way other cultures would know it would be different is by what the Israelites would say 
whenever they would interact. So they would be like, this is a legit place because look, they're not just coming in. And we talked about, you know, like Taylor Swift and Big Machine Records, kind of like <laughs> Taylor Swift, like we're doing a legit thing here. We're not doing something totally new, but they were by like with her music. Obviously, she takes off the top artists of the world. But the metaphor that I'm getting at there is like they're given legitimate legitimacy. And then from there, that opens the doorway for a revelation of something new. And we're also assuming that this happened. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how far apart the ancient Near Eastern cultures were spatially. I don't know. Like I said, I don't think people are peering into a window into there their culture. That, as many people as there are today. So Right. There's probably a good distance. So that's just speculation. But I mean, I thought the laws were given to the people to show that that people was distinct from everybody else and to kind of like show everybody else that like... I hey, think we're you're God's right. People and we, sure. We I think you're right. Yeah, business, they were. But we did talk about in that episode too that there were many, many, many similar ones to the surrounding place. So there wasn't a total like everything wasn't new. So like, like don't bathe your child in a your what is it goat's milk or whatever. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Oh, yeah. So like the surrounding cultures probably did that, and God was like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know what was God thinking. So, yeah, you know. Well, who knows? We should do an episode where we di- where it would be it would be fun. It'd be different, but where we can just look at different ones and maybe compare and say like you know talk about different laws, maybe what they mean and whatnot. So the second half of the question, which is that the sacrifices didn't just point to Jesus. And so to clarify that, um, I want to finish up here, kind of reading um, and skipping down a lot. Uh, Lost World of the Torah, you can go check it out. This is in chapter, uh, if you're interested in what I'm, what I'm in. I am in chapter chapter 9. So buy the book on Kindle. It's like 10 bucks. Chapter 9. It would be a mistake to think that the sacrificial system was all about sin. As already noted, most of the sacrifices are not responses to offenses. That would be indication enough, but we now turn attention to the sacrifices that are responses to offense, the sin offerings and the guilt offerings. This is what I think is the really most important part of this question. The sin offering is required when violation of the Torah has taken place unintentionally. Intentional sin had no ritual response. It was understood that an unintentional offense involving ritual impurity uh, had a desecrating impact on the sanctuary. To give a stark physical metaphor, imagine the defilement of feces splattered on the wall of the temple. The sacrilegious defilement had to be addressed. Blood was designated as the ritual detergent to expunge the results of the offense and restore sanctity in the sanctuary in order for the community. Given this understanding, we can see that rituals were not designed to take away the sin of the person. They were designed to restore equilibrium to the place of God's presence. The antiseptic role of the blood accomplished kippur. Kippur rarely has a person or sin as its object. The verb's object is typically the part of the sanctuary, such as the veil, the ark, the horns of the altar, that are being expunged. A form of this verb is used in the familiar Day of Atonement, at which time any offenses that have been built up over the year can be eliminated so that equilibrium is reestablished. He says, The result of Kippur being accomplished by the sin and guilt offerings is that the person can be forgiven and not cut off from the community. If a person is not forgiven nor cut off from the community, that person's continuing presence in the community will contaminate the sanctuary, resulting eventually in the withdrawal of divine presence and favor. Finishing here, he says, on the basis of this information, we can see that the translation atonement is quite unfortunate and misleading if we associate it with what Christ accomplished on the cross regarding our sin. Finally, 
Instead, kippur refers to what was accomplished on behalf of the sanctuary by the Israelites' ritual use of blood. If the sacrifices of Israel do not take away sin and never seek to do so, they have nothing to do with salvation and are not simply an anticipation of what Christ would do. So therefore, they are not just a placeholder until Jesus comes to do his work. They have a significance all of their own in the theology of the Old Testament and in the role of the Torah, which is an important role. Yeah, I think for me, just listening to that, Obviously, the, there's a hermeneutical question that still keeps popping up. I think we've kind of, we at some point just got to tackle it head on, is how do we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament? It has to come up at some point from a hermeneutic standpoint. However, that's not the question we're dealing with right now. I do think he's probably right in that he understands the Old Testament context of what's going on with the, the sacrificial system and everything. But I don't think at the same time we can wholly dismiss what the New Testament sheds on that, even if... Because it, it shifts. It does shift. And even yeah. if even if the writer of Hebrews or whoever is dealing with, their understanding of it is pertinent to how we should think about it as Christians. So even though that may be removed from the original context, we have to look at the whole counsel of Scripture and how we understand right. what what Christ's work means and and how if, if they understand a connection in the New Testament, it's something we, we definitely need to factor into our understanding as well. Is could, Walton saying that the Old Testament sacrifices did not? Yeah, he's saying that because of what they were for. Right. And he, and he acknowledges, like, Hebrews is using, <laughs> Hebrews is, is wrapping that in, but it's for a different purpose. He says that it's an ex, it's a extensive, deep metaphor, and he says he's tying... Oh, I see He says the Hebrews author is tying it in. I see what he's saying. But he's not saying that... All those sacrifices were solely for the point to illuminate what Jesus did on the cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would say that just because the Old Testament sacrifices weren't about removing sin doesn't mean sin doesn't need to be removed. Because Jesus, that was Jesus's purpose. Yes. To remove sin. So blood had to be shed for his people, for the removal of sins. Yes. So he's saying the Hebrews author is using the sacrificial system more metaphorically yeah, he said, I think his quote was like shelf space an extensive extended metaphor. Right, 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 right. I right. think that we still have to take the New Testament witness into account on what, if, if they're saying this was what it means, at least, in, and Walton said that, you know, in the second, he specifically says, in the second temple period, this is how they understood it. And the New Testament is a product of sep- second temple Judaism. The Old Testament, at least the Old Testament Torah, the Levitical yeah. law is not. And he's saying the understanding there was different, but as Christians, we still have to let the Second Temple period speak to how we understand. Sure. And this is this goes back to the whole issue Hermene- of hermeneutics, yeah. and like I'm telling you right now, that's a huge question that we need to... That- well, he says right here, he says, and by the way, we will do an episode on hermeneutic. I think that would be a very it, it, yeah. enlightening episode. Um, even the New Testament authors make this clear. The author of Hebrews indicates that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. <laughs> The sacrifices that included blood rituals in the Old Testament maintained purity of the temple compound and allowed the offenders to remain in good standing in the covenant community. It did not take away their sin. So, like, did the people of Israel have hope that it would, or was that a secret? Or in what was it a secret that the priests had? Like, oh, this really doesn't really do anything. No, I think that their thing was more about sacred space and right, retaining right, God's right, presence and right. community. So, I don't think because we have a very individual focus right, of sure. like my sin, you know, Jesus died for me, which is, he did. We, we affirm that 100%. But even there, you see, though, like, the blood of sacrifices, it didn't take away sin. So, like, I don't even see the hermeneutic issue between taking the Old Testament in context apart from the New Testament versus the Bible as a whole, because we it, know it didn't take but, away sin. Because and I, I, would, I, I would have to understand exactly what Walton's point is, but I, 
at least what I heard, and I may be wrong, is that the Old Testament sacrificial system does not in any way foreshadow the work of Christ in the New what Testament. What I'm probably getting, and again, I'm not a Old Testament sacrificial system uh, <laughs> scholar, so uh, I would probably say what ultimately the argument is, if you just read the Old Testament without the New Testament, you could probably walk away say, not thinking there's going to be one guy one day that's going to have to die for those people to like really cover it. Regardless of what exactly they thought would happen, in light of the fact that something did happen, now they look back and interpret what... In yeah, And that's where I'm saying we sit now looking back. We have hindsight. We look through the lens of the cross, and we can look back. So, yeah. And that's, that's kind of my point here is that sheds a lot of clarity and light and meaning, I think, that they would not have had. You're right. They would not have had that in the Old Testament period, you know, especially the early Old Testament period. So we can now look back through the lens of the cross and provide some... Right. Uh, and, and that's where Walton's obviously not going to do that. Well, and I think... But he's also getting into, I think, like, when you look at, like, the temple and what the temple has been redefined as people, because the offerings took away the desecration on the temple. So if our bodies now are temples of the Holy Spirit, and then what Jesus did obviously clears us as individuals, and I think that's part of the extended metaphor that Hebrews is probably tying in there. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it is, yeah. It's just part of another redefinition of who Jesus is and, and what he did in terms of, like, redefining the temple. Yeah, because when he did die, he abolished the sacrificial system. Yeah. There was no point. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. Like, stop making sacrifices because... They didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And that, no, it's a good question in Denver. It, uh... That is a good question. We don't want to say anything foolish. Very perceptive of you, Denver. Very perceptive. We do like saying things, uh, that might shake the status quo a little bit, but... I mean... I will say we affirm that Jesus takes away the sin of individuals and the people of God... And that uh, the blood of bulls and goats did not. And I want to affirm, too, that the New Testament authors, I believe that's what they're intentionally doing, of like reshaping the sacrifices. They're having to do that. Exactly, they are. They have to do that. But I don't think that God, during the Old Testament, is sitting there going, oh, you guys are wasting your time. Like, I'm tricking you. God wouldn't trick them. It had a different purpose than to... Because then it's like... (sighs) Well, then was the entire Old Testament sacrificial system in vain? I don't think that that is true to say. What Jesus did was way different and obviously way better than what they're doing, but I feel like it had its own purpose. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, Walt's argument is it had that. its own purpose in its own time for what it was trying to do. Right. It had its own purpose for the time being. When Christ did what he did, it then okay, he, nullified that because there yeah. were a new age. All right, right so right this, is, this actually will yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah. give a lot of clarity, actually, and this is something that I think Walton maybe is saying, but the, it also is saying what I think maybe we're saying, that the New Testament writers are drawing a connection, but yes. there's a difference as well. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, it's so platonic. <laughs> it, it just, anyway. It can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise... Would they have not ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Mm. So, I mean, that's straight from the author of Hebrews' mouth. So, so yes, to, to answer Denver's question, yes, what Jesus did amplified and... Um, 
re, re redefined, formed, redefined yes. what the Old Testament sacrificial system was. Yes, about. yes, yes. Denver, Shri, good questions. We had other ones, but we will save them for another episode. And actually, there were a couple that actually went in line with that law episode. We set ourselves up on that episode. We said we'd have other episodes. We're not doing that chronologically, but we will do future episodes on the law. This is kind of like a mini law episode. So again, guys, thank you guys so much for listening to this special episode of The Good Brew, our roast and grind. Send us any questions if you have them. Uh, you can email us at info at thegoodbrewpodcast.com. You can go on our website, which is thegoodbrewpodcast.com. You can send us questions on social media at Good Brew Podcast, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that kind of thing. If you know us, you could text us. If you're creepy and you want to find our phone numbers out some other way, then you can do that but uh, I don't recommend it because that's frowned upon. Um, (laughs) But anyways, you guys have a good one and we'll see you soon.